0: Nashville Repertory Theater presents Rep Chats, Nashville's premier theater podcast. I'm your host, Naveed Singh, and today we're going to talk to Elliot Robinson from Nashville Public Library, who's done some historical research around the background of our season opener, Ragtime the Musical. Later, we'll hear from some designers working on the show doing the costume and set design as well. Elliot, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and talk with us today. Thank you. Before we dive into rag time, Elliot, I would love it if you would share with our listeners some of the many resources that Nashville Public Library has made available to our community this season.
1: First, I want to say thanks for coming up with the idea for this partnership. Uh, we at Nashville Public Library are always willing and eager to help any of our local community organizations in any way we can. Uh, We're also creating a display for the lobby uh, to be exhibited during, at the T-Pac lobby during the run of Ragtime. So uh, all you folks, look for that when you go to see the show. Uh, just wanted to let everybody know where we are. I'm in the Special Collections Division of the Main Library, downtown Nashville, on the second floor. It's 615 Church Street. And uh, I want folks to come on down and see us. If you're ready to gather information about Nashville, Tennessee history, uh, historical records from just about every county in the state, If you want to come and work on genealogy projects, uh, we've got records from Tennessee and surrounding states, uh, such as deed records and wills and marriage records, as well as uh, census-related information. If you want to search old copies of local newspapers, come visit our microfilm room going all the way back to the 1800s, uh, the beginning of these local publications. And also other newspapers, including a collection of reels from old black newspapers around the country and things like Sanborn fire insurance maps and, and, and census records and things like that on microfilm as well. City directories. Uh, people come to use other smaller collections uh, dealing with Southern history and politics. We've got works by Nashville authors, a collection focused on musical theater and entertainment uh, donated to us by Rabbi Ken Cantor, uh, a women's studies collection, and of course, our civil rights collection. So none of these books circulate. So when you visit us, you'll have to do all your viewing of these items while you're there. But we we do have many books that have duplicate copies elsewhere in the system that can be checked out or put on hold and delivered to the branch nearest you. I'm sure you all have your library cards. Come and bound our volumes of periodicals and our Nashville City directories going back to even before 1900. Uh, And and this is just stuff that you see as you walk through our space. It doesn't take into account all of the things that we have tucked away in other rooms. All types of ephemera related to different subjects and from different communities. Our map room featuring city maps which date back to pre-1900. Things like the NAF collection uh, featuring items collected by a longtime employee of the Ryman Auditorium. The Hattie Cotton collection with items related to the bombing of Hattie Cotton Elementary School in 1957 during the time of school desegregation here in Nashville, and and the Cornelia Fort Collection, all about the famous female aviator and Nashville native. And we also house an extensive oral history collection, covering topics from Nashville neighborhoods and the Civil Rights Movement, Nashville Business Leaders, interviews with American war veterans all the way back to World War I, Music Row Big wigs, uh, the Nashville Flood of 2010, and plenty more. And many of these uh, interviews have transcripts that we can share with you as well. And being the public library, these services are free. And I'm just scratching the surface. So, surface. so please come and uh, visit us to satisfy your curiosity and uh, to visit our two permanent exhibit spaces, the Civil Rights Room, dedicated to preserving and celebrating Nashville's very impactful role in the modern civil rights movement, and our new Votes for Women room, dedicated to the struggle of American women to gain the right to vote and the fights that are still going on for respect and equality in these United States. Uh, We use these spaces for programming for school groups, corporate groups, churches, families, community organizations, you name it. So come on down and check us out. Definitely
0: be sure to check out some of those valuable resources available to all Nashvillians free of charge just with your library card. So now, Elliot, it's the turn of the 20th century, and three different cultural groups are all intersecting at the same time in New Rochelle and Harlem, New York, in Ragtime the Musical. One of the principal characters in Ragtime is Tata, a Jewish immigrant who believes in an America of possibility and imagination. What can you tell us about Jewish immigration in
1: Nashville during this time? In 1900... Nashville's population was just over 80,000, an increase of just 6% over 1890. This was because many were moving out of the city proper to areas that were considered suburbs, not so far out as to be considered rural, but not officially considered yet as a part of the city. In the mid-19th century, Jewish immigrants were coming to America mostly from Germany and Austria. They were fleeing political and religious oppression and seeking freedom and new opportunities. The majority of them were not strict Orthodox practitioners of Judaism, but they did raise their children to be Jews. Now, why Middle Tennessee? Some came just directly south from Cincinnati, which had a large Jewish community there, and some were attracted to Nashville because it was a growing commercial center and situated on a river. And those that initially came here pursued livelihoods that did not require much skill. Peddlers and traveling salesmen selling whatever, pots and pans or cloth, household goods, etc., until they saved enough to buy shops of their own, in which they would sell clothing and dry goods and cigars, or caps, baked goods, wine, fruit, and the like. In 1880, there were about 250,000 Jews in America, nearly all from Germany. And it was at that time that Eastern European Jewish immigration began in earnest. So much so that by the 1920s, there were four and a half million Jews in America. The Eastern European Jews came from larger communities, often within cities, but they were areas largely or entirely inhabited by Jews. Shtetl was the term. For example, 40% of the people in Warsaw, Poland, were Jews. The Eastern European Jews had little or no contact with non Jews. They spoke Yiddish, only spoke enough Russian to get along in markets. They, for the most part, lived an isolated existence in entirely Jewish communities their own synagogues, kosher butchers, and schools, etc. This was a little different from the German Jews, who had in large part assimilated into German culture, speaking the language and living and working amongst them. In 1881, however, Tsar Alexander III made Jewish life in Russia almost impossible. Jews were not allowed to move outside of shtetls, not allowed to go to Russian schools or to own land and farm or to run businesses. With no jobs, there was a real possibility of starvation, and they started to leave, By 1924, three million had left, half of the Jewish population of Russia. Many fled after pogroms, which were essentially organized massacres. Don't want to assimilate? Okay, then we'll kill you. Many didn't necessarily intend to come to America, they just wanted out of Russia. But more came here because they heard the stories of the ones who had come before and found opportunities to have a better life. They found nothing like the shtetls in America, so they built their own communities. Later immigrants tended to settle where communities were already established, which is why so many stayed in the large port cities along the East Coast. Jewish communities changed as German Jews were outnumbered, and Eastern European Jews from Russia, the Ukraine, Poland, Romania, etc. brought much more orthodox ways with them. They started coming to Nashville in the second half of the 1880s. Men like Simon Gertner were prime examples. He arrives here as a teenager, with no skills, speaking no English. He got a job with a printer, studied English in night school, and eventually got to the point where he could open up his own print shop, Cullum and Gertner. In Nashville, not as many Eastern European Jews, so Jewish life was not substantially altered. They concentrated downtown at this time. All three synagogues and the Young Men's Hebrew Association were all downtown. Ohavai Shalom was on Vine Street. The KKOS Conservative Synagogue was on Gay Street and Sherith Israel was then on Fifth Avenue, and the YMHA was on Union Street. By 1900, most Russian Jews were near the waterfront in tenements. Most moved away within 10 years, however, and by 1920, 80% of the German Jews and about 40% of the Russian Jews all lived along the West End corridor, as people wanted to get away from the poorer and more overcrowded areas and into homes with more space and privacy. As the Germans who came earlier moved into higher occupations, meaning as they obtained more education and more skilled training, becoming professionals, the Russians moved up to occupy a larger share of the medium occupations, the clerks and the skilled blue-collar jobs. Overall, the working Jewish population was moving upward, and those with means supported the upward mobility of their fellow Jews. So by the early 20th century, Jewish life is flourishing in Nashville, and they are making occupational and residential advances. The Eastern European immigrants largely remained foreigners. They stayed in all Jewish neighborhoods, still spoke Yiddish. They essentially lived a non-controversial, non-contentious existence, going about the business of taking care of their businesses and serving their community. They began to establish social clubs and country clubs, but their children and subsequent generations became more and more American. They spoke English and some attended public schools. They entered trades and professions with other Americans and they became successful as Jewish Americans. Later immigrants found these communities where children were taught Judaism and made sure their children married other Jews in order to keep alive their special identity.
0: Thank you to the Gordon Jewish Community Center for prompting the bulk of that research and hosting us during their Lunch and Learn event this fall. One of the other significant characters, and in my mind the main character of Ragtime the musical, is Colehouse Walker Jr., played by Justin Mariel Boyd in our production. Colehouse serves as a representation of the racial violence and adversity that were all too familiar to Black Americans during this time, and still to this day. What can you tell us about the Black experience during this time in Nashville?
1: Black Americans were also waging their own fight. To be regarded as equals in the land they called home and where they had been supposedly proclaimed to be free after the end of reconstruction legislation was enacted to disenfranchise black people and many poor whites featuring new requirements like poll taxes in order to be allowed to register to vote black political power was further limited by the commission form of government under which all members were elected at large as opposed to by single districts this made it harder for black candidates to become elected due to the difficulty in gaining citywide support in a majority white city. Nashville's black community was also experiencing a time of development and growth post-emancipation. Education has become a very important aspect of black life by now, considered by many to be the key to economic and social advancement. Fisk University was established here in 1866, and you start to see the development of an elite class of black Nashvilleians who were better educated and growing in wealth, economic independence and influence. They felt that they held all of the keys to respectability within the larger community, which was controlled by the elite class of white people.
0: If I could just interject for a moment, most folks believe that Nashville gained its nickname of Music City from the Grand old Opry in the 1920s, when in actuality it was the Fisk Jubilee Singers formed in 1871 who would go on to perform for President Grant and Queen Victoria at the White House. It was then Queen Victoria who gave Nashville its popular moniker of Music City.
1: There was a growing middle class with semi-skilled laborers, teachers, preachers, people with enough education and economic success to rise above the working class, where you had certain trades that were almost dominated by blacks. Barbering, cooking, and domestic service, shoemakers, blacksmiths, carpenters, even carriage makers and tavern owners. The white elite still gladly allowed blacks to work for them in a service capacity, cutting their hair fixing and shining their shoes, transporting them, preparing their meals, washing their clothes, tending to their children, all the types of things they were used to from the days when blacks were enslaved and forced to perform such tasks. There were those black leaders who held similar beliefs beliefs to Booker T. Washington that promoted agriculture and trades as the means of economic independence. They felt that blacks should not turn their backs on the skills that they learned while enslaved, that those skills could be the means of lifting up the race. Still, many espoused the idea of more education, use our minds as well as our muscles. They felt that all the work we knew how to do could only be done better with more education. In 1902, Nashville started a chapter of the National Negro Business League, the purpose of which was to arouse business interests among black people by supporting existing businesses and helping to establish new ones so the world would better know the capability of the black man as businessman. You even start to see the founding and development of black-owned banks in the early 1900s. One Cent Savings Bank was founded in 1903 and is now called Citizens Bank, still in operation here in the city. Like the Jewish community, while the black community grew in economic power, they tried to create a movement toward more order and respectability, establishing their own philanthropic agencies, benevolent societies, and cleanup campaigns. In the 1910s, you have the founding of Tennessee State University in 1912, and the opening of the Negro branch of the Nashville Library in 1916, the opening and dedication of Hadley Park in 1912, the nation's first public park designated for use by black people, and the establishment of the Negro YMCA to develop the whole man, body, mind, and spirit, and the YWCA as well. Jefferson Street becomes the historic business center of North Nashville's black community, and you had similar development in East and South Nashville as well. Jefferson Street remained a very influential business and cultural center, and also a place where great historic churches began to rise in the early, early 20th century, many of which still stand today. It was a very important area for Nashville's blacks until the late 1960s, when it was severed by the construction of Interstate 40. So you see a lot of similarity in these parallel lives trying to create community and identity for Jews in a new land and for blacks in a land where they had just recently been released from bondage and forced labor.
0: Elliot, thank you so much for that detailed research and your thoughtful retelling of Nashville history at the turn of the 20th century. I know I learned a lot just then, and I'm sure that our listeners did, too. Now, I hear that you've got some more fun facts about Ragtime and how it connects to Nashville. Uh, Just a couple of
1: other tidbits kind of related to the show. Uh, Harry Houdini is a character in the show. And uh, in my research, I did find that Houdini did appear in Nashville a few times. Uh, There was a great story about him showing up at the Nashville Police Department in November of 1899 and telling them to lock him up in handcuffs and betting that, you know, I I bet you I can escape. (laughs) So apparently they put him in a few pair, one of which they thought they had no key for even. And of course, he escaped. Uh, He came back out with the handcuffs in his hand. Uh, He did a show then at the Grand Opera House, which was on the site where the Municipal Auditorium now sits and his last appearance here was for a show at the Ryman Auditorium in March of 1924, and he actually closed the show that night with his famous milk can escape. Uh, Another character is Booker T. Washington. I found out there's a Booker T. Washington State Park in Hamilton County near Chattanooga. Uh, We have in our collection at the library the Booker T. Washington Papers about a 10 or 12 volume collection, including all kinds of correspondence and speeches and and anything related to the man, including one that he delivered at Vanderbilt University in 1907. He said that was one of the few times he was able to speak to Southern white men in a college setting. And there also used to be a Ford glass plant in West Nashville. And in fact, there's a neighborhood over near where the plant was, where all of the streets are names of Ford auto models like Starliner and Comet and Galaxy. There's a Thunderbird drive and there's even a Henry Ford drive. So there are a lot of Ins and outs and the in parallels, you know, where uh, Nashville crosses with the uh, the history of the time of the show.
0: Thank you so much. Those those are great. So please look out for the incredible lobby display that the Nashville Public Library is collaborating with us on. You can see that outside the Polk Auditorium during the run of Ragtime, which will be from November 11th through the 14th. Elliot, will you tell us a little bit about some of the events going on at the Nashville Public Library coming up?
1: Sure, sure. One well, one program in particular that's coming up. I October 23rd, it's a Saturday, it's a virtual program. It's called Truth Telling. And it's, uh, it's about the conflict between Ida B. Wells and Frances Willard. Frances wow. Willard was the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Yeah. And Ida B. Wells is probably best known for her uh, crusade against lynching. Uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And these two women had a really big public conflict back and forth that played out in the press. And truth-telling is about the the ins and outs of this conflict and why Ida thought it was important to get the support from Miss Willard that she didn't think she was getting. So that's Saturday, October 23rd. Uh, the program starts at 10.30. If you look at the National Public Library website, you can see information there about registering for the program. And uh, we hope to have you out.
0: Please do make every effort. Ida B. Wells, I'm a big fan of Ida B. Wells and her work. One of my favorite quotes being, the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. Thank you so much, Elliot, for being here. And until next time. Thank you. Welcome back to Rep Chats. I am Nived Singh, sitting here with Gary Hoff, the resident scenic designer at Nashville Repertory Theater. Gary, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Ragtime today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Of course. Gary, I've got some questions for you about the design and just sort of your design process. But it'd be great to get some background on you and your career here. How many years have you been building sets for Nashville <laughs> the, Repertory the, the Theater? The a question that I get um, all the time.
2: As of May of this year, 22 years. 22 years. Yeah, I came right before the millennium. Kind of terrifying. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for all your beautiful work that you've oh, done. You're so welcome. Uh, you can check out our website for pictures of some of the beautiful scenic design and set work that Gary has done for National Repertory Theater. Let's talk a little bit about this production coming up. Tell me about the process of starting a design for a show of this scale.
2: Well, I mean, most designs really kind of all start off on the same in the same place. It just depends on. Um, the scope of the show. So I kind of think about design as kind of a funnel. And you start off with the really big pictures, the really big questions, the big story, the big things that you want to say with the production, and then you whittle it down until you get more defined and more defined, and you pretty much I do that for every production, so that's kind of across the board. But when you're dealing with something as big as Ragtime, which is really monumental and huge, like,
0: yeah, it's huge. I think Micah Shannon on our last episode said that it, it was really one of the last big epic staged musicals.
2: It really is. It's it, there's something just grand and rolling and epic, mm. and you know all of those those big words that we love to use. So you so you kind of have to think about it in kind of two terms. You have to think about the show as a general look, Mm. like what what does the show look like as a whole? And then you think about all the little scenes because there's so many little scenes throughout the show. And you have to figure out a way to meld those two things together. So I usually try to start thinking about what's the overall look. What's the overall impression I want to give the audience? And then I work down to all the little pieces, parts. And of course, working really closely with the director, which happens to be Micah Shane Brewer in the case of Ragtime. Mm -hmm. So we, we whittle it down, but it's really about, I always start off with kind of the big Big ideas, you know, what's the, what do I want the audience to feel when they come in? How do I want them to respond to the show? How, you know, what's the kind of um, emotions I want to evoke from the audience? So those are the big questions I always start with. Um, And obviously, with ragtime, there's some really big questions. (laughs) I mean, there's some like really major things to talk about with the production. So um, you have to be really conscious of that through what you design. You don't want to undermine any of those really important stories. Mm. Um, You want to be true to all the stories in the show and you don't want to underplay them or make fun of them or, you know, just not give them their due because really there's three separate storylines and you want to make sure all of those storylines get equal treatment and get equal play throughout the show. So you want to try to really be conscious of making sure everything really balances and so it's a, it's a kind of a weird balancing act and then trying to make 38 people move around the set in a, you know, somewhat logical manner and, you know, get the on and off stage, and we're gonna put a car and you know, all of that good stuff. That's just some of the weird stuff about ragtime. I mean, it's not often you have a Model T car on your s- stage. So, you know, so there there's um, some really interesting small uh detaily things about rect time that just like, yeah, I better figure out how and you know make enough room for a car. <laughs> you know, that's you know, that's not something I really have to worry about very often. And and this one I kind of do. I have to like oh, where we gotta put a car on stage. And so it's it's that kind of thing. And it's kind of a uh, and then it's just working with the director and whittling down to what are the really specifics of each scene and what do we absolutely need. Because specifically in this production, the cast moves everything. So the cast is responsible for bringing all the scenery on and off stage. So it means you don't want to overload them with a lot of extra. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow. So, so there's actually no crew coming on and moving. There's no
2: crew coming on stage. There are crew off stage okay, and they'll take care of it. You know, once the cast is off, they're like, here, take it. Okay, <laughs> um, So there are, there are crew off stage and there's a uh, rolling bridge slip stage that they'll um, be working for the most part. But the cast is bringing on all, you know, if there's furniture, if there's rolling pieces, the cast is dealing with all of that stuff. So I have to be very conscious about how does it work? Where does it come from? Making sure Mike and Shane understands every single piece. Piece, how it's going to function, who's going to deal with it. So it's it's a lot of uh, technical aspects that we, you kind of have to deal with throughout the entire show to kind of make sure it all rolls. Because it's it's very kind of cinemagraphic in a lot of senses. It just rolls from one thing to the next, to the mm. next, to the next. Um, so it has to move really seamlessly. So, so that's something I really have to keep in mind when I'm designing.
0: Sounds like a lot of challenges, especially with the idea of having actors actually entrusted with mm-hmm. moving things around. Are there any other challenges that are specific to your design for this show that are just like, that's a ragtime problem? That's a ragtime
2: that's a- <laughs> problem. In this particular production, a lot of it right from the beginning, I told Michael Shane, I said, I think we need a projection designer. Right. Because it's big picture things, mm-hmm. and it's things that we don't have the space, the time, or the energy to actually build. I can't build Atlantic City. I can't build the boardwalk. <laughs> I can't build the beach. Absolutely. So yeah. um, we needed something to really visually set a place and set it quickly. So that's projections.
0: Literally big
2: picture. Real literally, <laughs> literally big pictures, literally big pictures. So um, so that – right from the beginning, I, I, when I was talking to Mike Shannon, like, look, this – we really have to really think about this seriously mm. because realistically, we can't create that kind of look scenographically. Um, we don't have the space to paint drops. Um, I'm not a really a drop painter anyway, mm. and we would need 50-foot drops, and Absolutely. that's a huge, huge thing. Ooh.
0: Well, I think that takes a lot of artistic experience and integrity to be able to See a challenge like that and see that we need to bring on someone else to help this challenge, this particular challenge. A yeah. L- lot of respect for being able to make that call. And Well, I mean, if, if you've done it as long as I have, you realize
2: there's, a, you know, you know, what can be done and not done. Absolutely. You know, and what can be done well and what is, you know, not going to be able to do well. And so you kind of have to say, okay, if we want to not, you know, have this aspect, then we don't do this. But if we do want that aspect, we need to do this after years it's like there's just certain things that scenery does well there's certain things that lighting does well um so you kind of have to make sure whatever that the thing is that's really going to work for the production is the thing you use. And so you kind of, you know, you got to put your ego on the back burner and and you know, it's like people are going to be talking about the projections. That's fine. That's the production. My job is the production, not just my part of the production. So them saying, "Oh, the the projections were awesome and the costumes were great and did you hear the sound and oh my gosh, the lighting was amazing." That's all fine with me. It does not hurt my feelings at all because <laughs> it means the production worked. I think
0: that's great. I appreciate you mentioning sound. Not, <laughs> not that anyone has ever done that. No, 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 no. That but, would be silly. But uh, we are lucky enough to have Cody Stocksill doing our projections. Yeah, and it's going to be amazing. I think oh it's Oh my really gosh, folks, cool. you are going to be blown
2: away. Um, and this is something we have not done in this scale Ever. In the history, well, at least in my history uh, of 22 years at the rep, we've never done anything like this. So this is really exciting for me as well to be able to have somebody of his caliber put his artwork upon my work. I'm very excited about, you know, seeing it because I'm going to be an audience member. I'm going to be seeing it as, you know, it's going to be like, oh, that's awesome, you know. So, I mean that that's as exciting to me as it is to everybody else. so it it's
0: is be great fun. It is just beautiful that we'll be able to create this really cool multimedia experience exactly, exactly in a, in a very cohesive way where it all melds
2: together. and I'm hoping that people like experience the whole production and are like, oh, it just was magical or you know it just moved me, and I just was swept away by it. Well, that means we all did our job, Absolutely. which is great. that's yeah. you know that's really the end goal for um. Any designer is really just to, you know, have the audience swept away and carried away with the production and at the end go, wow, that was great. Mm. You know, that's
0: that's what you want. And it's a feeling that we've all been missing for quite some time. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, Gary, you mentioned a Model T. Now, would you be able to tell me what your favorite piece that you're designing for Ragtime is? Your favorite set piece, favorite scenery? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's the first one I did, and it's probably the one that'll be seen
2: the least on stage. Which is usually the way it goes, yeah. you know? Because especially in a show like this, there's a lot of little bitty scenes. Sure. You're doing some very detailed pieces That'll be seen once, mm. twice, maybe. Sure. Um, and it's it's a piece on Tate's, um working in the uh, textile mill. And I recreated a textile mill piece for him to be on during that scene. And it's really short. And I had the best time making it. Wow. It's really, it was so much fun. And it's like, literally, it's going to be on stage for like... Seconds, but it was like it, w- it was so much fun to do. It was like it kind of got me back into the groove of creating and, and making things again because it was something I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna do that." To do that so that was great fun
0: look out for that one but also we are so excited to see your entire design for this get your tickets for ragtime now available on NashvilleRep.org. gary thank you so much for oh, coming thank in you so much for having here now you are gonna
2: be just blown away by ragtime please come see it it's gonna be amazing
0: next up we'll have Lori gansmith coming in to tell us a little bit about the costume design of ragtime the musical Lori, thank you so much for being here today. So glad to do it. Lori, would you tell me a little bit about what your process in starting the design for a show of this scale is like?
3: Well, for any show, um, I'm definitely reading the script multiple times to pick out anything that is specific to costume, but also just getting the feel of the characters, looking at the locations and the time of day and all the things that most designers are looking at, you know, when they're reading a script specifically for this show, because it is a behemoth of a show as far as characters are concerned, because we have 35 actors, but many of those actors play multiple characters Mm -hmm. or have multiple costume changes. So I'm looking very specifically to figure out where to start my research. So, you know, the, the year that it's set is very important to look at that year in the United States, but also in the other countries that the immigrants are coming from right. to see sort of like what the clothing looks like from their home countries, what they would arrive here with you know, what would be important to them, Mm -hmm. looking at um, political and socioeconomic things that were going on that was driving the immigration that was happening during that time. And then looking at the people who were already here and what kind of conditions they were living in. Um, In this particular play, you know, it's our white New Rochelle family Mm -hmm. as opposed to the African-American community that existed um, that's represented in the play. So just looking at those differences and then that sort of points me in the direction of where to look for things to look at so for research.
0: It's interesting to hear that there's such an anthropological piece that goes into the research that you're doing.
3: That's one of the things I really love about costume is because I'm a very curious person naturally mm. and so I really love digging into those kinds of things and And then part of that is also talking to the actors mm. and seeing what they have researched and how they're forming that character and what their backstory is and how that might meld with what I've found out.
0: So right, and that yeah. might change. You know, even as the rehearsal process Absolutely. is going. So, yeah. is there a favorite piece that you're designing specifically oh, for yeah. Ragtime? Yeah tell, yeah, tell us about your favorite. So, piece.
3: my favorite um, number, the the costumes for the number of Crime of the Century. Um, not only are the Corings and Evelyn's uh, costumes going to be pretty fantastic and very Can Can girl kind of inspired, but also the jurors who are in that scene are sort of operating as sort of these keystone cop kind of characters and so they're going to have a very specific look that's going to add to the sort of the bizarreness and the the humor there so that whole scene i'm i'm pretty jazzed about
0: that's one of my favorite songs in the whole (laughs) musical so i'm excited to see those as well yeah (laughs) So what are some challenges that were specific to your design for this show, Ragtime? I know that there are departmentally specific challenges in any work, but what were some things that came up in costume designing Ragtime that were specifically challenging?
3: Well, first of all, just the scope Mm. of, of the show itself. There are so many costumes in the show, and if there is another way to do that and get around the fact that there are almost 300 costumes in the show, I don't know what it is. So, oh um, so that was a big challenge. And then some of the more specific, like you know, we have these historical figures who are in the show, and those people are pretty easy to research, right? Because they were people who would have been photographed during this time because they were making news, like the people in the Crime of the Century. You know that was all over the newspapers. But the immigrants, for instance, finding pictures of specifically Haitian immigrants from this time, or specifically Italian immigrants, because a lot of times when that photography was being done, there wasn't really any delineation about where they were from. Now, there is one collection of photographs that were done by an official at Ellis Island during this time. And I can't remember the name of the the collection, but it's in the Library of Congress. And it's a, a group of about 40 photographs, I think. And those photographs specifically identify where those people were from wow. arriving at Ellis Island. So that was super helpful. But it was a challenge to find stuff. It's okay to take artistic license, and I'm sure. okay with that. And I have in some cases. But I also like to know what was really going on so that then I can extrapolate from that. Well, so. that makes
0: a lot of sense because of means at the time, you know, those mm-hmm. wouldn't be families that would be going out to go get a portrait taken. Right. So thank goodness for people like that at Ellis Island that documented the stuff so your interpretation is able to be as authentic as possible. Absolutely. So ragtime is at the turn of the 20th century. What were some typical fashion styles that you might see walking around during that time period?
3: Well, probably the most recognizable sort of silhouette and thing that we think about from this period of time, Charles Dana Gibson, who was a very famous illustrator for magazines and uh, newspapers and doing prints and things that would be, you know, um, brought into people's homes. He was the illustrator that brought us the Gibson girl. That's where we get the terminology, the Gibson girl. So it's sort of this very sort of updo hair that mushrooms out and very soft kind of thing. A very wasp-waisted woman Mm -hmm. with a full bosom and then a long flowing skirt. And actually, Evelyn Nesbitt, who is one of the historical characters in this play, was his model for the Gibson girl, what became known as the Gibson girl look. I and see. so it's very um, in this show and very tied into that. Um, so whenever we see those kind of silhouettes in the show, all of that is sort of like has come down from this influence that Evelyn Nesbitt had on fashion and illustration of the time.
0: It's so interesting to to hear how all the historical figures in this musical were so thoughtfully chosen, like Evelyn Nesbitt, the iconic original Gibson girl. Absolutely. who you'll be costuming for Ragtime. That's so cool. Thank you so much, Lori, for taking this time to come in and talk to us here on Rep Chats. For a first look at some of the beautiful costumes that Lori has designed for Ragtime, the musical, head on over to nashvillerep.com to the Ragtime page. You can also visit this page to purchase tickets to our one and only weekend of performances November 11th through the 14th at TPAC's Polk Auditorium. Coming up on Rep Chats, we'll hear from the cast of Ragtime the Musical. I'm your host, Naveed Singh, saying thank you so much for listening to episode two of Rep Chats. Till next time.